This is InsurTech Perspectives with Vault, and I'm really thrilled to welcome David Lewin back into the pod. David is Vault's Vice President of Product. So you've probably noticed there's been a huge surge of interest in new insurance technology companies over the last two years or so, and I really wanted to get David's specialist lens on some of this, and he brought some great insights. Here's a short clip. We're still probably not quite mature enough to work out out of all these tech industries which ones are going to stick and which ones are are just a bit of hype. Interestingly, this chat led to another chat about the value of watching first and then moving. Be a second mover, understand what other people are doing, what's working for them and seeing if it's something that we think will fit our strategy and what we do. And we talked about how critical it is to open up your business model, even if that's not how your business was originally designed. How do I make sure that different people within insurance can talk to each other and not just try to control and centralise everything themselves? Let me also add that David is the epitome of a great guest because he brings all that tech knowledge but also really contextualises it and brings it to life. So thank you, David. Thank you too for listening. This is episode eight. David, I would love to start by picking up on some of the wider themes that I talked about on the last two episodes with Jim and David Brandeis. Firstly, we know there's a hive of activity across the globe with loads of new startups all claiming to be the ones that can truly uh, disrupt and transform the traditional insurance distribution model. So the good news, I guess, is that the optics look good from a, a wider industry perspective. But from your viewpoint, where is disruption really happening? And also, how do we separate out all the hype versus something more tangible? So Fiona, first of all, amazing to be back in the pod. And I think it's been about six months since we did our last recording. It is, yeah. And believe it or not, a lot has changed in six months. (laughs) Okay. As it does with the tech world. So first of all, insurance is a huge industry. It's a massive beast. It's regulated. It's really hard to perform real and meaningful change within such a highly regulated conservative market. But at least in the last two years, and there's been a lot of digital players coming into the industry And for good and for bad, they're starting to disrupt the market. Now, how do we work out hype versus the tangible? It's a really difficult question. And we're still probably not quite mature enough to work out out of all these tech industries, which ones are going to stick and which ones are, are just a bit of hype. Right. But if you look at some of the actual digital insurance players that have been formed in the last five to six years, talking about companies like Lemonade, Hippo, Root, I mean, Metromile, which was acquired by Lemonade, there was a lot, a lot of hype about these companies. Just huge hype. Yeah. I mean, they've done amazing things for the industry. But at the end of the day, if you look at these players, they're still insurance companies. And they have to operate under the regulation of insurance companies. And I think if you look at the share market, when these guys floated as companies, people consider them to be more of tech companies than insurance companies. And with a COVID bubble of tech inflation and investment coming in, these companies and the share prices just took off. And I think their valuation 
differed very much from where they were in terms of a actual insurance company. Interesting. And I think you're seeing that being grounded now. If you look at these prices, at least at the time of the recording, over the last six months, at least since we last spoke, I mean, some of these share prices have dropped 70, 80 percent. Wow. Which is crazy. But at the same time, right, these guys are actually bringing in some digital change to the market. And although they're an old school insurance player, they're bringing in new technologies. They're bringing in new way that we can do distribution and insurance some of them are bringing in new lines of business that weren't there before. That could be really interesting in terms of tangible chains. Yeah, that's a smart answer. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is what you mentioned with COVID, because the pandemic made so many industries across so many spaces, I guess, desperate to digitize and digitize fast, that anybody claiming to be able to do this was getting a lot of attention, a lot of hype and this can skew or perhaps even inflate certain valuations. And as you say, the dust is now settling and uh, and that creates the, the litmus test. So last year, you and I talked about APIs and how these power bolts, incredible speed and connectivity. I know Bolt was an early adopter of these web-based open source APIs as opposed to, I'm guessing, app-based solutions. And to understand the significance of what Bolt has achieved over the years, I do think people need to also understand the context a little bit because insurance carriers in the US spend billions of marketing dollars each year and across the globe. But the stats tell us that insurers on average have ended up turning down something like 40% of customers simply because the customer profiles don't match the risk appetite of the carriers. So I suppose the insurance distribution model has been siloed by its own technology. And going back to these APIs that we talked about last year, the magic is that Bolt has been able to instantly connect into everyone's risk engines so you can match the right customers with the right carriers, effectively being able to say yes to the business and uh, offer customers more choice. So do you still see APIs as the main fuel to power a new insurance distribution model? Well, lo- loaded question, Fiona. I'll start with the end. <laughs> yeah. Un- unequivocally, yes. But but let me just go into a bit more detail about the API. And, and we talked about it last time around what an API is. Take the world of claims, right? If someone's driving a car and they have a you know an, an IoT device in the car or a mobile phone in the car and they have a crash, unfortunately. Now, in theory, the IoT device can pick up that a crash has occurred. Um, they can monitor it using the technologies in those devices. And they can report directly to the insurance company that a loss has happened. They can do what's called an FNOL, first notification of loss. Now, more than that, they can then get the phone out and they can take photos and videos of the car. Through artificial intelligence, they can pick up which parts of the car have been damaged. They can then go automatically and talk to suppliers of those parts, get an automated quote to know, you know, this is my headlight, it's this model of the car. They can go talk to some procurement database, bring that number back. And in theory, you know, using, again, different technologies to prove that this customer was in a crash and this was the car, they can then go automatically pay out the claim on the spot. So someone who has a car crash, in theory, could get the money in their pocket at the end of the day. Now, Got it. everything I just mentioned over there is in itself a piece of technology and a really cool use case in and of itself to get the touchless claim process working. The magic of that, though, you know, really to make all that work, is how do you connect all those things to happen in microseconds in real time? 
And that's exactly what the API does. The API in each of those processes that I spoke about, you know, when it informs insurance company that there was a crash, it has to go speak to the manufacturer to understand what parts and the cost of the parts. All those little pieces of the chain are connected through APIs. Yeah. So not just in distribution, but in the whole insurance industry, APIs is there to stay. And it's a way of connecting, and I, I use this word in a lot of my talks that I do, ecosystems, right? It's how do I make sure that different people within insurance can talk to each other and not just try control and centralize everything themselves. So now, as you mentioned, instead of a carrier saying no to the business that they could get, they're willing to go talk to other players in the market to say yes. And that's really the power of the API. And we as Bolt, you know, we're, we're connected now we have what we call 5,000 connections. And a connection is a state, line of business, and a carrier. We have 5,000 of those things, all talking completely over APIs. So you fill in your insurance form, you click submit, and we come back with tens of different quotes instantaneously from different insurance companies through these APIs. So it really is the way of the future to working in a more open world and opening up the insurance markets. Yeah. And as you say, it's proven so what about the role of agents? Because in episode four, I talked to Eric about Bolt Access, and I know that Jim and David Brandeis value the human touch. But I would be really interested to hear your take on this as well. Do you see the agency or the broker model as ever becoming, for example, obsolete? Or, or what is your view on that part of the ecosystem? And ironically, as a technology guy, you probably want to hear me say, yeah, they're all going to die out because technology will replace them. But <laughs> I did wonder. Maybe someday in the future, but definitely not in my lifetime. And I'm still a young guy. <laughs> I definitely think that there's always going to be a necessity of a human in the insurance chain, in the insurance value proposition. I think you'll see some of the smaller, more micro products that don't require heavy explanation or heavy understanding from a consumer's perspective move digital fairly quickly. And again, we talked about some of those digital insurers. That, I mean, that was the target, right? But when you're talking about more complex risks or you're talking to a different age or demographic of audience, these people want to speak to a human. It's, it's very hard to explain to them what you're actually getting covered for so they know what they're buying. And more than that, if a claim comes through or you know something unfortunately goes wrong, people always want to speak to the human on the other end and make sure there's comfort and understanding in what they do. Yeah, and I suppose savvy agents are already reimagining or redesigning their own roles as, as true financial educators for consumers so they can help with more complex areas of discussion and upsell or cross-sell, for example, auto or renters or some of those smaller ticket items. Definitely. And just to add on, I mean, again, with the technology lenses on that, Although the agent won't be completely removed from the process, I do believe agents, and you'll see it happening more and more, are going to be following digital trends as well. Something interesting that we're looking at, for example, is what we call a video agent. Today, you know, you and I, we speak on Zoom, people are talking FaceTime with their families overseas, and a lot of work has gone virtual. Why aren't agents using video more as part of their process? Why aren't agents using tools that can pick up voice sentiment and the language to help them in the sales process or artificial intelligence to work out what the right product to sell to the consumer is. So I, though I do see the agent is staying, I do think that those agents will leverage technology as time goes on. And if not, I think you'll see them not being able to compete in the market because they just don't have the right tool set that they need. Yeah, so they've got to upskill 
And in terms of sourcing new ideas, how hard is it to stay competitive in the sense that everybody in the industry is trying to create new products and new ideas? I think it comes back to that first question you asked about hype versus tangibility, because there's so many cool ideas out there, but it's how do you get the real good ones that both bring you short-term benefit as a company, but also longer-term value in terms of an offering to the market. And I think in terms of us creating ideas, I'd say it's a twofold strategy. Number one is we actually look what our competitors are doing, and maybe not our direct competitors, but maybe other people within the insurance industry, what they're up to. And I wouldn't say copying, but adapting some of the stuff they're doing to fit our model. So I think that's one really good source. Be a second mover, understand what other people are doing, what's working for them, and seeing if it's something that we think will fit our strategy and what we do. But then the other one is really that first mover. It's just We've got this innovation that we explore what's out there in the future, and we try to work out, is there really a good value proposition there that we can sell out to the market? And one of those ideas that we're working on, I mentioned earlier, is the video agency, right? So we're trying to see how do we incorporate all this stuff that's happening in the business world around video, how do we bring that a little bit more into the insurance value chain, especially for the agents to see if they can leverage it in a cleverer way. Um, so they're really the two, the two strategies we go for, the second mover and the first mover. And that whole idea of having value in being a second mover is interesting because, as you say, you can add on to ideas, you can slightly pivot them and find new value in something and recapitalize an idea. And in terms of tech trends, I've been trying to clue myself up on new areas of blockchain and NFTs and advances being made in the data space. It is hard to keep up. And as a writer, it's kind of my job to keep up with new tech and new trends. What's impressing you? at the moment? There's so much tech and so much buzz around some of these things, blockchains, NFTs. I mean, I'll talk about one buzz that's really interesting, and that's the metaverse. Oh, yeah. It relates to blockchain and NFTs, right? It's similar stuff. But I mean, the metaverse is effectively a virtual world. So if you remember, I think it was back in 2006 or seven, they had a second world, which was like living a parallel life. Okay. The metaverse is similar, but it tries to bring it more into a real-life world. So everyone has um, avatars or recreates themselves in a separate space. And effectively, you know, it's really like living in the real world. You can buy property, you can put on virtual reality goggles and walk around, you can create relationships there, you can make payments there. And I think it'll be really interesting to see where does insurance fit into the metaverse? Because you've heard Facebook, for example. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, is, as an entrepreneur, said, you know, Social media was the 2000s thing. The 2020 thing is the metaverse. He's renamed his company Meta because that's where he sees the vision going. So to me, it's where can I see insurance fitting into this metaverse? And it could be a number of things. I mean, it could be you think about the old London or Lloyd's markets where you had to go to a certain marketplace to buy insurance and underwriters and brokers and consumers would meet there. I mean, it could be the same thing now. People could meet in the metaverse and buy their insurance in a virtual world. Or, or it could be, as you spoke about cyber, doesn't need to be some form of insurance for people being involved in the metaverse. If someone steals bitcoins from you in the metaverse, you need to be insured for that. I mean, it's, it's just this whole new concept, which I can see taking off, but I can't quite yet put my finger on where does the technology meet the insurance. Yeah, I mean, it can all feel a little bit dystopian and I can foresee a world of corporate pixels and payroll interactions and I'm not sure I like it, but let's see. But thank you for helping bring it to life because a lot of us are still getting our heads around this. I think Apple is working on something similar as is Microsoft, so Zuckerberg may have some competition there. 
I guess we'll soon find out. So do you think that future product development will be primarily data or consumer-led in terms of tracking, for example, IOB, the Internet of Behaviours? Yeah, another great question. And I'm going to be a diplomat here and say a bit of both. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, first of all, it has to be consumer-led because consumers are the ones going to be buying or using the products and it has to be friendly for them. It has to be designed around how they're going to experience any journey that they're going to go on, whether it be the what we spoke about, the distribution, whether it's a claim process, whatever it is. It's always going to be the consumer at the end of the day that needs to be covered or, or paid out or, or whatever it is. But at the same time, I don't think consumers at times, A, know what they want, or B, the insurance companies can just leverage what the consumer is telling them. I think very much the role that data has to play there is to supplement that consumer-led thinking. I mean, simple examples, right? (laughs) That if you're going to buy insurance online and the button at the end of the journey says, pay here or buy now or buy now for $20, whatever it is, the text of that button, right? So the consumer knows they have to press a button, but what to display in that text, what's called a CTA, a click to action button, that has to be led by the data. I mean, the data has to say more users are clicking it if it says the amount of money they're paying or if the user would pay as opposed to the word buy. So I think consumers know that they need to click a button to buy something. The button needs to be there, but what the text of that button shall say is all data-based. And I think you'll see the, the marriage of those two worlds of consumers saying, we know that we need to press a button versus the data world saying, well, let us tell you what to put inside that button. Interesting, really interesting. And when you came into the pod last year, we touched upon Tel Aviv and life in Tel Aviv and also how it's evolved into this incredibly vibrant hub for innovation and new technologies. But in hiring good people, I know it's competitive and employers, I think globally, now need to really sell themselves as much as the candidates do. I know Bolt has a a great reputation. So out of interest, how do you tend to hire and who are you looking for? I mentioned since last time we spoke six months that insurance world has changed, that Tel Aviv technology scene, I mean, it's like crazy how much has happened here. Not over the last six months, it's an amalgamation of the last probably two to three years of things. But I guess what's driving it is a few things. First of all, the the amount of capital pouring in, and we talked a little bit about tech bubbles, but the amount of capital pouring into the economy here is crazy. I open the paper every day, and pretty much every day, or at least once a week, often twice, three times a week, there's another technology company that's done some sort of capital raising and they've branded themselves as a unicorn because the valuation's over a billion dollars. And this is from a country that has, I think, 7 million people available in the workforce, of which only 300,000 people are, are technology workers. So companies just have cash to burn here at the moment and that makes the employment market really difficult, right? Because someone who you would have hired at $100,000 salary a year. I mean, now the market is saying you can pay them within six months $150,000 a year. So it's just a really crazy market. Now, how much of that is part of this technology bubble that might be forming? How much of it is, is a longevity thing? It's hard to say. But it's a very interesting market. You know, my thing is you've got to keep your best people, make sure you look after them. That's absolutely critical. And to show them value, not just in terms of salary, but also I think what's cool about Tel Aviv and the technology team is people, I think I mentioned it last time, people really want to make a difference, right? They're not working just because it's a cushy job and, and they enjoy it. They're doing it because they really want technology to solve for business issues. And I think you need to show your value as an employee of what you're changing, what part of society you're changing, what dynamic you're, you're being able to shift through your technology solutions. 
I think that's what's really, really attractive to a lot of the people in, in the employment market. Makes sense. You have to feel like your work has purpose. Just to touch on another question, when you talked about who do we tend to hire, so A, it's those people who are dreamers, people who, you know, not just coming to work because they want to earn a salary, it's people who, who feel that they want to make a difference. And something else which is really interesting, by the way, is being a man is, is, <laughs> is, is the woman in tech, right? Yeah, that's a, a big topic in itself. I think you're seeing, a, you know, used to be technology used to be, I came from IBM, so it's a, it was the big blue men, you know, style of employment in the tech world. <laughs> yeah. What's really interesting now is that we're seeing at least 50-50 of uh, women being hired in tech now as well. So it's not just a man's world anymore. And I think it's a fantastic change. I know I'm a big supporter of, of women in tech. And we really like to make sure that we balance it, that our our demographic is equal and that we're hiring the best talent that we can find. Yeah, thank you. That's really encouraging. And as you say, it's not just about hiring the best, it's that retention factor too. What's it like, though, to run an R&D centre from Tel Aviv when the business lives outside where you work? What are the pros and the cons of working under this distributed work model? And it's very popular, by the way. You see a, a hell of a lot of companies opening up their R&D centers in Tel Aviv. And there's good reason for that, right? I mean, the obvious con is that you're not close to the business. So if there's certain terminology that's happening in the US or in Europe or in Asia, you know, it takes a bit of time to familiarize yourself with that and the concepts that they're doing. But what I think the, the biggest pro is, is that it also allows you to sort of take a step back and think a bit more creatively. You're not drowned in the, in the BAU of the day-to-day -day world thinking how the market just works and, and copying what the market does, it allows you to take a step back and think, well, why is it working like that? Why can't we make a change? Why can't we introduce a newer technology to be able to solve for that problem? So to me, that's the biggest pro. And obviously, the second biggest pro is that the people here are just really clever. <laughs> I mean, coming from Australia, again, I, I went through all the systems there and, and I did quite well and everything. And I'll consider myself the top of the class in Australia. I mean, you come to Tel Aviv, and I'm just an average guy. It's not that I've, I've got something cleverer than I did in Australia. It's just everyone here is, is just in the know. They're all following the trends. It used to be perception that people in Tel Aviv didn't have the right communication skills. That's improved a hell of a lot. Sales and marketing used to be run overseas. That's being in-house now into Israel as well because people are, are just becoming much better at it. So it's really interesting um, to see the change within the, the workforce and society in general in Tel Aviv in the last 10 to 20 years compared to what it used to be. Okay, yeah, although from what your colleagues tell me, you're far from average, David. So what about your own management style? How has that evolved over the years? Ah, oh, a hell of a lot. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. I mentioned before, I started my career at, at IBM, and IBM was like a fantastic learning ground. You know, you, you learn the basics of, of business, but it was a big bureaucratic organization. And I moved from there to other uh, bureaucratic organizations. I think as time has gone on, my style has become a lot more colloquial. I like you know, rapid change. I like to work fast. I don't want to get bogged down in, in bureaucracy. And I think that's probably been the biggest change is instead of booking a meeting on Outlook in, in two weeks' time to speak to someone, it's now you just pick up the phone and you call them or you send them a message straight away. It, it's that ability just to go in a much more agile and, and quicker fashion. And I think that's you know, really, really changed in how I've worked compared to 20 years ago to how I'm working today. Well, I can tell a lot about people by email etiquette and you've been so efficient and responsive when we've been talking and planning this podcast. So I guess I can speak from experience there. 
I'll take that as a compliment. Absolutely, it's a total compliment. Uh, Listen, David, thank you so much. It's been great to catch up and share perspectives and you have a, a brilliant way of bringing ideas to life, which I know listeners will appreciate. So again, thank you and uh, let's chat again soon. Thanks, Fiona. And again, love being on the podcast and I hope I've provided some value to the listeners. So thank you very much. And that ends our podcast. If you want to learn more, head to boltinsurance.com and do make sure you follow Bolt on LinkedIn because we'll be putting a load of bonus content on there as well. You've been listening to InsurTech Perspectives with Bolt. My name's Fiona Mattesini. Thanks for listening.